Welcome to The Growth Factor, a broadcast ministry of St. Mark Baptist Church. Today, as part of our family, you will experience the life-changing and spirit-nurturing Word of God. Please enjoy this time with us as we're committed to helping you grow in knowledge, grow in faith, and grow in God. St. Mark Baptist Church, you grow here. Well, welcome back to the Grow Factor podcast, a broadcast ministry of the St. Mark Baptist Church here in Little Rock, Arkansas. My name is Pastor John. I am the co-host of this podcast, and I'm the Connections Pastor here at St. Mark. And on this episode, we have a very special guest. I call him my prelate, my bishop. I call him Pastor Ernest Thomas is going to be joining us on this particular episode. He's our discipleship pastor here at St. Mark. Welcome to the podcast, sir. In this episode, we're going to be dealing with Make It Make Sense. This is the series that we've been working through, working through how to study the Bible. And we're answering the question, so what, in this episode. We're going to be talking about application and continuing our conversation about application. So make sure you tune into this episode because it's going to be amazing. So Pastor Thomas, we're talking about application last week we started down the path of application of answering that question so what but i want to spend a little bit of time and take a little bit of a pastoral care here to remind people of our why behind this uh, you and i are pastors here at saint mark and the reason why we're doing this uh, our theme this year is dig deeper and we don't do that just so that we can have a graphic for the year Okay, we really put some thought into the idea that that being able to dig deeper in God's word is something that God's people need to do. And let me tell you all this. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. But Pastor Thomas and I and Pastor Porner uh, and other teaching pastors would be remiss if we did not teach y'all and give y'all the tools that you need to be able to dig deeper. Ephesians 4 tells us just that, right? As Paul is talking to uh, the church and talking about how the church is laid out, he says he gave some apostles, uh, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and shepherds and teachers, right? So he says that that group in verse 11 has one primary responsibility, and that responsibility is to equip the saints for the work of ministry that we are to equip you all to do the work of ministry. I know that sounds backwards, right? (laughs) Because in church, we think that the pastors need to be doing the work of ministry. But if we believe God's word, and we believe what God's word says in Ephesians 4, that we are the equipping people who equip you all to do the work of ministry. And here's the thing that I, I see sometimes, Pastor Thomas, is that when people come to me and say, hey, I'm looking for a new church home, some of them aren't actually looking for a church home. They're looking for a church Airbnb. <laughs> they want a church that provides them with amenities that they don't have any responsibility in. And I'm not sure what type of household you you grew up in, but when I'm home and in my house, then mom gave me p- duties and tasks and responsibilities that I would have. So if you're looking for a church home and we're your church home, then we're going to help equip you to do the work of ministry. Isn't that true? Yeah. It, it, we're actually fulfilling what Jesus 
told the disciples, he said, you will do greater works. Mm-hmm. Not because they'll have more power than Jesus, but because it's more of them out and about fulfilling the word of God. And so what we're doing is, like you said, we're equipping all of the saints to do the work of ministry. Mm-hmm. And the foundation of that is understanding the word of God. Mm-hmm. Because there are so many different thoughts and theologies and things going on and you have to be able to read the Bible and understand the Bible for yourself. Otherwise, you can get caught up in whatever is the popular notion of the moment. Mm. But if you know how to study the Word of God for yourself, Mm. it will make the greatest difference in your life and the life of those around you. Yeah, I mean, it's a big difference between me, and this is what happens on Sunday, when Pastor P preaches or Pastor Thomas or any of our teaching team preaches, uh, we bring you a plated meal. You don't see what happens in the kitchen because if you saw what happened in the kitchen, you'd see stuff all over the counter. You see it. It's a big mess, but we bring you a plated meal. Now, what we're doing through this series is we're taking you in the kitchen. And guess what? You're going to have spices on the counter. (laughs) You're going to have a mess in the kitchen, but it's giving you the tools necessary to be able to work through the text. And it's going to be difficult. Uh, There are going to be dishes that need to be washed, so to speak. Right. Uh, But we're doing that so that you can prepare yourself when people ask you questions. So you don't have to say, well, let me call Pastor Thomas or call Pastor John or Pastor Point. Okay, I'm about to get out my soapbox, but I need y'all to understand that we're doing this so that it can equip you. And it's going to be tough. It is deep, deep work that we're doing, but it's necessary work because we are called to equip each and every one of you for the work of ministry. And it makes us a healthy body when when more people can dig into the word and hold each other accountable uh, in the in the authenticity of the word itself, making sure that we are handling, it's your job as the body to make sure that the leaders are properly handling the word of God. Mm-hmm. And so you are the guard rails to make sure that we are preaching and teaching what thus saith the Lord. Yeah. So all of us need to be digging into the word. That's good. Mm-hmm. And and that's why we are now turning to application. So we, we work through observation. Uh, we work through interpretation. Now we want to look at how you apply it in your life. And last week we started down that road and we will complete that tonight. But we want to just review just a little bit just so people can understand why application is important. And that begins with this idea that scripture isn't really meant to just inform us. It's not just a head knowledge thing that we're doing here, but it really is meant to transform our lives in a very realistic and meaningful way, right? Yeah, the the goal for every believer is spiritual maturity. It it doesn't matter what, what God has called you to do. Every believer's goal is spiritual maturity. And spiritual maturity is not quoting scripture, it's living scripture out. Mm -hmm. Knowing scripture, but not living it out is not spiritual maturity. I hear people talk about, well, I'm more mature than they are because I know more. Well, knowing more is nothing. That's what the book of James tells. That's Mm -hmm. what James tells us over and over. It's about obeying the word of God, living out our faith. Mm -hmm. And, And that's what application is all about. It's applying the word of God to your everyday life so that you can live it out and mature mm. in your faith walk. 
Yeah. And I think that a lived out faith does a couple of different things. First of all, it shows people around you what scripture looks like in flesh and bone. Uh, you're not just teaching it. You're not just saying it. But as you live it out, people see that. And then two, it is a living witness to Christ himself so that when I'm around other people, um, I am evangelizing not just by my words, but by my deeds and actions. And when I'm applying God's word and applying it to my life every single day, then people see that and they realize that. And then they ask me about this Jesus that I follow. There's something different about you that I want, that that a, the world out there longs for this type of relationship. And seeing that in practice is something It's one of the greatest evangelistic tools you can have is living a lifestyle like that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people may not go to church or read the Bible, mm-hmm. but they see you on the job, in the store, at the family reunion, and it's how you live out your your faith in everyday life will either stir up the curiosity for them to want to learn more about this Jesus or, mm-hmm. unfortunately, may push them away. And so we have to take this seriously of being a mature believer and walking this walk and not just talking the talk. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So um, we also mentioned that Jesus implies that true followers actually do what he says. I know that sounds (laughs) sounds simple, but it's easier said than done. Um, It's easier to quote scripture than to do what it actually says. Uh, So the application portion, uh, even though it's last in the process, it tends to be the most neglected because it requires something of us. Um, the other things just require intellectual assent. It requires us to say, oh, I believe that. <laughs> yes, but do we practice it? We just went through a series on James about putting this into practice as opposed to that intellectual belief and assent, right? Yeah, uh, and that's what I love about James, the book of James. And I know we've referred to it time and time again. What I love about James is he understands that uh, theology is done in everyday life. Hmm. Theology is not sitting at a desk and writing it out. It, it's applying God's word to everyday life. Yeah. And that's really what it's all about. It's, a, it's about us reflecting the love and grace of God in the different circumstances that we meet hmm. as we just live this life out. Yeah. And, and that's, that, that's what we do. We try to live this thing out yeah. so that the world can see. Yeah. And the other thing that we mentioned I want to highlight in terms of application and why it's important is that uh, Bible study generally um, should be seen as a mirror as opposed to a window. Uh, It's easy to apply text to other people. (laughs) It's much more difficult to apply it in my own life because when I read a text, I start to think about who needs to hear it and who needs to be able to be transformed by it as opposed to viewing it as it really is, which is a mirror for me and not a window for them. So we want to make sure that in our application process that we're not thinking about Junebug and Cousin Annie. No, we're thinking about ourselves because the personal application is going to lead to community transformation. It's not just us trying to transform other people, but we need to apply the balm on ourselves before we try to give other people the balm. Yes, it goes back to the old story of the 
the couple that uh, lived in this house and uh, the neighbor across the way, that's when they used to wash the clothes and hang them on the line. And she talked about how poor of a job the neighbor would do that. Ooh, look, husband, that those clothes are so dirty. This poor woman doesn't know how to wash clothes. And she would complain about it every day. And then one day she looked and said, oh, she finally got it right. The clothes are clean on the line. I wonder what, what, what does she do? And the husband said, I cleaned our windows. And so oftentimes <laughs> we, we're trying to look through dirty windows at somebody else's life. That's good. But it should be a mirror instead of a window. That's good. That's really good. So that's what we need to do in terms of why we approach it this way in our application. But then the, the follow-up question that we started on last week was, okay, Pastor John, Pastor Thomas, how is it that I apply this to my life? How do I go about applying this to my life? Well, it starts with being honest with yourself that in our looking in the mirror that we have to look at the flaws and all. <laughs> you know, some people, when they, they look in the mirror, they neglect the flaws in the mirror. And uh, other people may have to tell them about them. But if we're honest with ourselves and looking at our spiritual selves in the mirror of God's word, then we understand and God knows where our flaws are. Even if we don't hold them up on Sunday morning, even, even if we're dressed to, to the T's and to perfection, uh, God knows and we also know. So we have to be honest with ourselves in that process. Yeah, God would prefer that we do periodic self-evaluations. I mean, that's really what he wants us to do, that as we study the word, and dig into the word, and allow the word to shine a, a light on our life, to go through those self-evaluations and uh, allow the Holy Spirit to work on areas of our life versus he have to tap us on our shoulder with circumstances and trials and tribulations and or even correction by other people. Mm. He would really prefer us to take care of those matters ourselves and say, God, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, work on these areas of my life instead of just saying I got it all together every day. Yeah, and that's what that's what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. He says, keep a close watch on yourself. Before he even gets to his teaching ministry or the way he's able to proclaim God's word, he says to him, here's what I need you to do. Keep a close watch on yourself, which means you have to do self-assessment mm -hmm. in a way that is real to help you be able to keep a close watch on yourself. So uh, he says, be honest with yourself as an application. But then we also need to uh, make it experiential. Uh, we have to take this application and say, OK, I have different areas in my life where this could possibly apply. And in my experience, this is how this particular text could help me. Now, I call these life domains, different areas of life where you should be always thinking through and thinking about uh, how God is speaking to you and what God is saying to you. Uh, last week, we talked about the social component, uh, that this gospel that we believe isn't just a vertical gospel. It's not just you and God. As a matter of fact, the great commandment tells us we're called to love God and love other people, which means there are things that we need to think through socially as we read these texts and how our relationships are socially and how we can better improve all of those relationships, whether it be a spouse, uh, friendships, co-workers, all those relationships, according to scripture, matter to God. And we all need to be cultivating those in very rich ways. Yeah, it's uh, a matter of fact. A good measure 
of our love for God is seen in how we love one another. Mm-hmm. We always talk about how much we love God, yeah. but we're not getting along with one another. And, and the Bible is clear. So how, how can you love a God that you've never seen mm-hmm. and you're not getting along with your brothers and sisters that you see every day? There, there's a contradiction here. And so we have to take those social relationships very seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also we talked about this idea of family and how anytime we read a text, we need to understand how this applies in my family. And for many of us, we spend a lot of time with our family. Uh, These are the folks that we're around more often than not. As a matter of fact, when you hear sermons on Sunday, you may be thinking about family members (laughs) and thinking about how you relate to family members because those are people that you spend a lot of time with. So as we work through scriptures, some of them are going to be direct references to family, how you relate to your spouse, how you relate to your children, uh, how you relate to auntie and them. But on the other hand, the ones that are generally relational are ones that you also need to be able to apply in your family context as well. Yeah. Um, you know, the local church is a, is a family of families. That, that's what it is. And so the word of God, it's to help us become better husbands, better wives, better sons, better daughters, because we are placed in a family of believers, mm-hmm. but we're also in a family. We're born in a family. So family dynamics are great and awesome, but they can be challenging. And so we need to go to the word of God and, and glean the wisdom from God, who was the creator and inventor of family, mm. to, to give us the wisdom that we need so that our families can operate the way that they should operate mm. and not be in dysfunction. Yeah. So not only do we have to look at social areas and family areas, but last week we, we finished on this. We talked about financial. And I, P didn't think it was a good stopping place, but I did because I wanted them to sit with this one, okay? Because it's very important. We just we just got out of, and I know you have a background in accounting. We we just got out of tax season, and all we all pay what we owe the IRS. Yes, but did. scripture is very clear that one day we're going to owe an accounting, and not just for our spiritual lives, but also for our financial stewardship of God's resources, what God has given to us. One day we will be held to account for. So greater than the IRS, there's going to be a day when Jesus himself is going to allow us to be accounted for or cause us to be accounted for how we steward the resources that he has given to us. One of the biggest fallacies that I hear in the church is that the 10% belong to God and the 90% belong to us. No, sir. No, ma'am. The 100% belongs to God and we are stewards of over it Mm. and he's going to hold us accountable for our stewardship Mm. that's what we have to always remember let me also say these two words in dealing with your finances money matters (laughs) yes so make sure we have an amazing amazing course uh through uh his division (laughs) pastor thomas's division money matters that helps you through financial stewardship you know a lot of us growing up really some of us didn't really get taught that because we didn't have sources of wealth and income. We didn't have wealth building sources historically in the black community. So 
it's okay to be taught financial stewardship. Uh, that's been happening in Euro communities for decades. They've built wealth through that financial stewardship, and we have to be able to think through ways we can build wealth too in our own communities. And it starts with thinking about how to build your wealth through money matters and classes like that. Let me just share this one. There's such a wealth gap, uh, particularly here in the United States of America, between black families and white families. Uh, and, and I'm glad we're talking about wealth because typically as African-Americans, we think income versus wealth. But the, the measure of your blessing is really wealth. And so the average African-American household, wealth is about $15,000. Hmm. The average white family in America, uh, their wealth is one hundred and seventy dollars or $160,000. Hmm. It's a huge gap. And so we need to take this this financial stewardship matter very seriously uh, because there's such a wealth disparity here in the nation. And mm -hmm. the Bible helps us. Mm -hmm. It really does. And other believers can help you with practical tips on how to be a good steward of the blessings that God has given you. You know, what really concerns me is that a lot of people will hear about that class and treat it like a remedial class. Like, I don't need financial stewardship, but all your bank accounts jacked up. And you got credit card debt out all out there. So we just want to make sure that we're offering you all resources that you're able to take advantage of so that we can help you in your financial stewardship. So we have social, we have family and we have financial. Well, tonight we're going to uh, close out with one to three different other areas where you can apply, um, apply the text. And we're going to start with vocational and career. I mentioned you had an accounting background before pastoring. I come from a legal background prior to pastoring, so I was a lawyer. And you know what I, I never really thought about was the connection of God's word to the work that I was doing um, and how that work was actually a calling. Uh, when we hear calling in the black church, we think about, a preacher being called to the pulpit, but that's not the biblical idea of what your calling is. As a matter of fact, the word calling comes from the Latin vocare, which means vocation, which is where we get the word vocation. So whatever it is that you do in your life is your calling. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to be behind a pulpit preaching to have a calling that whatever it is that you're doing right now is your calling in life. And we're going to be challenged here in the text to treat that calling uh, in a very specific way. So let's look at Colossians chapter three as we think through this vocational piece, because Paul is going to talk to the Colossian church about this idea of calling and vocation. But first, we got to deal with a, a social issue. That's very important to this particular text. So we're going to look at Colossians chapter three and verses number 23 all the way through chapter four, verse one, 22, 22. 22. But we need to start with this understanding. So Paul is talking about Christian households in the first century. OK, and for black folks, texts like this can get a little bit touchy. OK, because he's talking about husbands, wives, children, and then he goes to talk about slaves. 
or bond servants. Now, when many of us hear this phrase, slaves obey your masters, it's triggering. And rightfully so, because the context in which we hear that, we understand it. But as we talked about on previous episodes, context is very key. So don't let all them Hebrew Israelites and other folks tell you that they talking about chattel slavery in this passage. Okay. Because slavery in the first century was different. Right. Pastor Thomas. Yeah. And, and you have to understand that uh, at the time that the apostle Paul is writing this book to the church, it's policy uh, about 50% of the Roman empire is made up of slaves. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's this huge issue that you cannot ignore mm-hmm. that, that Paul had to deal with. And so I'm glad he didn't run away from it. He deals with this issue, mm-hmm. which tells me this. If it applies to a slave, mm-hmm. then those principles can apply to us today. They can. They can. And one of the other things we have to realize about first century slavery versus chattel slavery in our culture and context is, first of all, it was economic and political. It wasn't race based. So you had uh, you had slaves who were Middle Eastern. You had slaves who were African. You had slaves who were Medes, who were Persians. You had slaves who were in every racial, quote unquote, demographic. It was more so economic. Mm -hmm. People actually sold themselves, quote unquote, into slavery. It was more of an indentured servitude. Yes. I like to call it blue collar work. Mm-hmm. I'm working for an employer and eventually I can buy my own stuff. They were able to own homes, buy homes. They were able to save money. So this isn't the chattel based slavery that we have today. As a matter of fact, in Exodus, it says anyone who kidnaps and sells a slave should be put to death. That basically says chattel slavery is wrong because we were kidnapped and sold. So if you are going to be biblical, the biblical understanding of chattel slavery is that anyone who kidnaps and sells anyone is liable for death. But this particular context, indentured servitude is basically blue collar employment or work. Yeah. And the concept really, you know, thank God we don't have any form of slavery today in the United States of America. But the principles lay over the employee-employer relationship perfectly, mm-hmm. yeah. seamlessly, it really does. They do. So as we read this, I want you to think about that in the employer-employee relationship context. All right, so we're going to start in verse number 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. There's a a bunch in this text here. But one of the things I want to point out here is when he addresses employees or, or bond servants here, he says, uh, don't do it by way of eye service. Don't do it just when they looking. Y'all know how y'all be on the job working hard when the boss comes around. But he's saying, what are you doing when they aren't looking? 
because ultimately you're working not for your employer, but for the Lord. That ultimately your ultimate boss who is looking at you all the time is seeing the things that you aren't doing when you own your earthly employer's clock. And even though you're thinking you're getting over in those instances, Paul says, don't do it just to get eye service from earthly masters because your, your God is looking at you every day and every hour. Who you believe is your boss will determine how well you do your work. That's it. If you think your boss is IBM or Exxon or whoever, then you're going to work that way. But if you believe that your boss is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. then you will take this to heart because look at how he describes how we should work mm -hmm. with sincerity and heartily. In other words, this can be your testimony. Mm -hmm. You're going to your job. And, and I'm, I hate to say that oftentimes as believers, mm -hmm. we smudge our Christian testimony because we want to show up at 9.30 on Monday talking about how good church was on Sunday. Mm. And, and you smudge your, your testimony. Mm. And then when you get to the job, you want to talk about what we're going to do for lunch. And I need to <laughs> you check just my got email. here. Just got here. Talking about where we're going. <laughs> John, where are we going for lunch? No, no. Yeah. We, we have to work as unto the Lord. Yeah. And the Lord is always watching. Yeah. And, and he speaks also to those who are employers. Yes. Uh, just in case y'all thought y'all were getting off uh, in chapter number four, verse one, he says, uh, treat your bond servants justly and fairly. Give them a fair wage. Uh, treat them, treat them with equity. Uh, don't exploit your employees under the guise of Christianity where we're we're nonprofit. We're, we're a Christian organization, so we can't pay you as much as we pay other people. Well, you're not paying them a fair wage. So scripture says we have to treat them justly and fairly, knowing that you got a boss. You have a master in heaven who is seeing how you're undercutting your employees under the guise of the Christian banner. Yeah. Uh, two points that even the boss has a boss. <laughs> yeah. Everyone has a boss. God is the boss over all bosses, number one. And then number two, the practical thing is, is, is particularly, once again, he's writing to Christians. Mm. He's writing to Christians. So pay them a fair wage. Mm. Give them benefits. Yeah. Give them flexibility. In, in other words, treat them the way you would want to be treated mm. if you were doing the work. And, and then what, what, what this whole thing is saying is God is going to repay and judge everybody, mm. employer and employee. Yeah. And, and here's the other thing I want to say. <laughs> we tend to treat our work like a punishment, whereas God treated it as a pleasure. That if you look back to the origin of creation, God does all this work and it says it was very good. It was very good. He tells Adam to work to till the land. Now, some people could say, well, we're under the curse. Guess what? We've been redeemed. And redeemed people need to have a redeemed mentality when it comes to work. Your work is not a punishment. It's a pleasure. And if you're saying that God supplies all your needs according to his riches and glory, guess how he supplies your needs? Through your work. So, so you need to treat that job that you despise 
that job that you don't like going to, that job you celebrate Fridays for, as a pleasure because God has given that as an opportunity for you to be able to be a good financial steward because that is how he supplies your needs. Your work is your worship. Your work is your worship. And if you are acting raggedy on your job, then your worship to God is raggedy because you are ignoring that you are working for the Lord. Mm-hmm. Your work is your worship. And sometimes what we, we complain, I don't like this job or whatever, and I want God to bless me with another job. But you're not being a good steward of what God has placed in your hand. If you be a good steward of the little, then he'll put, bless you with the more. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. That's how you get the more. Be a good steward of the little yeah. and, and watch him increase mm. in your life. And let me just say one more thing while we own work. Go ahead and say one more thing. <laughs> just one more thing. Because this is the thing that really frustrates me because I think that people don't understand that when people see you as a believer on your job, they want to believe that your word is your bond. So if you commit to something, follow through. I always tell people that a hard no is always better than a soft yes. Don't give nobody a shaky yes answer on stuff if you're not going to be able to do it. It's easier just to say no. I can't do it. It's okay to say no uh, because sometimes that affects your witness. Well, so-and-so, I knew they wasn't a Christian because they ain't followed through on this. They, They didn't come through for me on this. Well, that's part of your work, and that's part of your worship. So... As you're an employer, as you're an employee on the job, uh, make sure that you're doing things that represent what the word of God says. So so if you make a commitment, follow through on it. And if you don't follow through on it, guess what? You need to apologize and have a conversation and not just let it linger and sit out there. I know we're going to sound like a quartet, but one more thing. (laughs) One more thing. Uh, let, Let me give you three practical tips that'll help you with your stewardship on your job. N- number one, show up when you're supposed to be there. Show, show up, be on time, stay as long as you're supposed to stay. If it's a 15 minute break, take your 15 minute break, whatever, show, show up, be on time. Number two, know your job. Hmm. Know your job, whatever it is, how simple or complex it may be, know your job, be an expert on your job. And then number two, number three, do your job. <laughs> There's some people that show up, uh, but they don't do that. You know how, how we are. I ain't come here to do no work today. You know, <laughs> no, do, do your do your job. That's good. And then I, I believe if we're faithful with that, then we'll see God blessing God's hand mm. on our life with our vocation. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest places for your witness to show up because you spend a lot of time on your job. So vocation, we mm-hmm. talked about social, we talked about family, uh, we talked about uh, financial. Now we talk about vocation. Next up is health. Uh, time to end the episode. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I'm going to have a salad today, okay? I'm going to have a salad today. So, so this is the area where we don't necessarily want to talk about, but God talks about it in scripture and also health covers more than just your physical. Um, and I want to look at first Corinthians chapter six verses 19 and 20. And he's talking about this in the context of sexual immorality and the body's relationship to sexual immorality in Corinth. They were having 
problems with prostitutes in the culture and uh, the people, the Gentile folks who were previously Gentiles and now part of this, this church understood that joining with the prostitute was a regular practice. It was something they did regularly in idol temples. They had a temple committed to prostitutes. We've talked about this before and they would go and spend time worshiping with the prostitutes. I hope y'all caught that. So here's what he does in first Corinthians chapter six, verses 19 and 20. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own for you are bought with a price. Here's the closing. So glorify God in your body. How do you glorify God in your body? Well, you take care of the temple that God has given to you. He uses this temple language because the people in that culture used great care to take care of the temple because it was the one, the mode of transportation for worship in this culture and context. And he's saying in the same way, your body is your mode of transportation and you need to take care of the temple, the body that God has given to you. Yeah. Uh, I think Paul is kind of using a play on words with this whole temple thing because mm -hmm. Because he's writing to these Corinthians yeah. in this Greek culture. In the Greek culture, the temple was where gods with a little g mm. dwelt. Mm. And and so they and so they they made sure that they took care of the temple because they didn't want to offend their gods. Yeah, that's good. And and he's saying that, hey, you need to take care of this body because it is the temple. And really it is, because this this is the place where the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Mm. And so we ought to take take care of it. Our stewardship over our finances and family and stuff, but stewardship over our own bodies. And so it it means that that we only have one body. You may have multiple cars. You may have lived in different houses, but you only have one body and we're to take care of it. But it's more than just a physical body. Facts. And so what he's saying is we ought to be good stewards. We, we ought to make sure that that we evaluate everything that we place in this temple in our body. And I, I always say we have three receptacles. We have a mouth, we have eyes, and we have ears. Mm. And so, so that's how we receive things in this body. So we need to be careful of the food that we intake for the physical body but also our eyes and ears for our mental for our mental and emotional mm. part of this body that that we need to be the gatekeepers of what we consume yeah uh, there was an old saying when we used to pro program computers years and years ago they say junk in junk out <laughs> that if you put junk into a computer mm. once it finished tabulating it's going to spit out junk the same thing with these bodies mm. junk in yeah. junk out so be a good steward of this body. It's a very important concept because Jesus himself in Luke 11 says that the eye is the lamp of the body. Yes. That there's a way in which you take stuff in that could possibly light the body. But then he contrasts it with the darkness in the culture and the world around him and says that there's also darkness that can be let in through that eye gate per se. 
and that we are to be stewards, not just of what we, again, put in our mouths, but what comes through our ears and also what we visually see with our eyes. Yeah, that's correct. And and so we we have to take our job as being the gatekeeper mm. for these bodies, these temples, seriously. Mm. And and we have to be wise enough to count what I call the hidden costs. I, I don't know if this is true. I saw on social media they're attributed to Morgan Freeman, but I, I don't know if this quote is true. Uh, they say he said that uh, um, a Big Mac doesn't cost three dollars and ninety nine cents. It costs you your health. And Netflix doesn't cost $17.99. It costs you your time. Mm. And, and, and social media doesn't cost you, um, doesn't cost, it's not free, but it costs your focus. Mm. And he says there's always a hidden cost. Yeah. And so we have to really monitor what we take in, what we listen to, what we watch, and everything along with what we eat. Yeah. And so that's how you work through application that is experiential. Mm -hmm. You try to look at those life domains to make sure that in those domains in life, what is this text saying to me, to us, uh, to the people around me? How do I impact the people around me through this text? So that's how you apply it there. And another way that we can um, apply it is simply through meditation Mm -hmm. on God's word. So let's look at Psalm chapter one and we'll look at verses one and two, which may be familiar to many people. I think we may have covered this a little bit before, but it really is the essential text on meditation on God's word. Now, when we're talking about meditation, we're not talking about some ancient Eastern practice. This is actually a biblical practice. You don't have to have uh, sages and uh, sit in your room with your hands up and saying, mm, no, this isn't what the Bible teaches us about meditation. Um, meditation in scripture uh, actually is a rehearsing, uh, going over it over and over again. That word meditate uh, comes from this idea and it's used later of a lion having a bone and just gnarling on the bone over and over again. That's what meditation on God's word is. And the opening two verses of Psalm deal with that. Uh, talk about that. So it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But contrastly, his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. So this text uh, really walks through this progression of community relationships It's saying, and I know you've taught on this before, so uh, you can unpack this just a little bit more for us, but it says that you see this progression. He's he's walking, he's standing, and now he's sitting in the seat with scoffers. He's He's gone down into this relational abyss here. And the psalmist says, instead of that, I need you to, to spend time not with these people, but with God's word. And I always took away from that this idea that the company you keep tends to be the, the company that keeps you. And the people that you have around you tend to be the people that 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 keep you. And what this text says is instead of those people around you, you need to surround yourself with God's word and meditate on it day and night. Yeah, it, it, it always strikes me that we know that there's one hundred and fifty psalms in the Bible. But the first psalm, 
<laughs> the first two verses of the first psalm. Yeah. It talks about the importance of meditation. And I always mm -hmm. say Psalm 1 is the drum major of the whole book of Psalms. That's right. It sets the tone and tenor for the rest of the Psalms. And, and what it does is it elevates the importance of us internalizing the word of God in our life. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, uh, Psalm 119 and 11 talks about that I have hidden your word in my heart so that I will not sin against me, mm -hmm. against you. Uh, because it's good to have it in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, but you may not have your Bible with you when you're confronted with temptation, yeah. distractions, and stuff like that. So we need to have it in our, and we internalize it by meditating, mm -hmm. murmuring it over and over and over so that we won't make the mistakes that this person in Psalm mm -hmm. 1 made, fall into that progression of going deeper and deeper down. One of the most important spiritual disciplines in the life of a believer is memorizing scripture. Mm -hmm. That when, again, when you don't have scripture present, scripture is inside of you. So you'll be able to recall scripture. And I know people are out there like, I, I don't have the mental capacity. You know, all them 90s R&B songs, as soon as they come on, you know, every line of them. And in this culture and context, which is, this frustrates me a little bit, too, because we come from a people who are oral tradition people. We don't we didn't write down much stuff. We memorize stuff. And I think uh, through our capture and enslavement, uh, we got lazy on the memory side and now intellectualize and write things down and say, oh, well, I can reference it. Whereas before we were a people who memorized the Jewish people memorized the entire Torah. They, they memorize the whole thing as kids, as young people. So I don't think that we can use the excuse that we don't have the mental capacity because we do. God has created our brains in very unique, unique ways where we can have great short-term and long-term memory. So I want you to challenge yourself to commit yourself to uh, reading and memorizing scripture, even if it's just a few verses of scripture. Yeah, it's, it's not about how much that you memorize, but it's about how important it is. Is it timely? Is it is it important so that it can come up at those right mm -hmm. moments? That's that's really what it's all about. And uh, we, we have to respect the oral tradition, not only as African-Americans and as Jews. I mean, once again, the Jews, it was an oral tradition until God instructed Moses right. to sit down and write, <laughs> write these first five books. It had been passed on orally. Mm -hmm. from generation to generation to generation. And that's kind of how it is with us. And, and we have to get back. We can, we can memorize. We can learn. Mm -hmm. It just takes time. And I can remember it's, it's repeating it over and over again. And yeah. I still, I'm a firm believer that, you know, repetition still works as a learning tool. That's good. Yeah, that's good. All right. So let's, let's turn now to five questions to ask a test text. These are application questions that you can ask for every text. These are five questions I want you to have in your toolbox to ask of every text that you look at from this day forward. You ready for them? I'm going to give them all to you and then we'll walk through as many as we can here. Okay. Mm -hmm. So number one, is there an example to follow? Is there an example to follow? Number two, is there a promise to claim? Is there a promise to claim? Number three, is there a sin to avoid? 
Is there a sin to avoid? Number four, is there a command to obey? And then number five, is there a condition to meet? Is there a condition to meet? All right, first, let's talk about examples. Is there an example to follow? Uh, so we talked about this before, but there are some texts that are prescriptive uh, and then some that are descriptive. Prescriptive means it's like a prescription you get. You can use it yourself, right? Descriptive is just a narrative, a historical narrative to saying this is what happened in this person's life. Don't expect it to happen in your life, but we're using it as an example for you either to avoid that behavior or not to be able to do, to do it. Right. So, so we see here in Genesis 18, uh, Abraham, mm -hmm. Abraham in Genesis 18, I'm not going to read the entire text, but you all can write this down. Genesis 18 verses 22 to 33. We can explain to them what, mm -hmm. what he does. So here he is, uh, outside of Sodom and Sodom is getting ready to be destroyed. God has said he's going to destroy Sodom, but there's a problem. A lot who's related to Abraham is in Sodom. So Abraham comes up with this cleverly devised plan to ask God not to destroy Lot without asking God not to destroy Lot. So he, he goes through this process of asking God over and over again, if there are a hundred righteous folks in Sodom, will you spare them? And God plays with him. He says, if there's a hundred, I won't destroy him. So he goes down these numbers successfully, 50, 45, gets all the way down to 10. And God says, if there are 10, I will not destroy Sodom. Now, a couple of different things from that. Number one, there weren't 10 people <laughs> because he did destroy Sodom. <laughs> he did destroy Sodom. But on the other side of that, we see this beautiful picture of being able to intercede for other people that Abram. Abraham himself interceded for Lot. And here's the thing. He interceded for someone that he had tension with. Earlier in the text, when Abraham and Lot's shepherds had issues with the land, Abraham decided to give Lot what was looking like the good land. And they separated. But he didn't allow that tension not to allow him to intercede and pray for Lot. I don't know about y'all, but it's hard to pray for some people especially when they do what Lot did. <laughs> but he's a good example of being able to intercede and pray for Lot. And ultimately, Lot is delivered from Sodom because of Abraham's prayer, that God remembers Abraham's prayer and he's delivered. Yeah, it, it is. It, I'm a, it shows the power of intercessory prayer. Mm -hmm. Abraham is laboring with, this is not a short, the reason we're not reading it is because this is a long narrative yeah. <laughs> of, of 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 Abraham laboring with God, bargaining with him, you know, don't don't destroy the whole city because it's so many righteous people still there. That that's number one. He's laboring and I firmly believe that God in heaven really listens to our intercessory prayers. That's when we stop praying for ourselves and begin to pray for somebody else. But then number two, what I love about it is Lot is considered righteous. Right. Right. I mean, look, look at Lot's life. You know, once again, the, the tension with Abraham, he starts off in the beautiful plains outside of Sodom and Gomorrah because it was beautiful land. You know, he was, he was a shepherd like everybody else. But then before long, he's in the city mm -hmm. in the midst of all of the sinfulness that is going on. And yet 
he's considered righteous and God rescues him and his family. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So that's what we see there. We see that there is an example in that particular text to follow. Mm-hmm. I want us to look at first Corinthians, uh, first Corinthians 11 real fast, uh, chapter number uh, verse number one. And Paul says something very interesting here that may sound like he's beside himself, that he is someone who is uh, has a little bit of a self inflated ego. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's what happens before the comma. Listen to what he says here. Uh, as he just told them to do everything to the glory of God um, and then turns around and says, well, I want to tell you something. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul admonishes the people at Corinth to imitate him, but he adds a caveat. Mm -hmm. To the degree that you see me following Christ and imitating Christ, I want you to imitate me. I think that takes a a lot of humility from, from Paul to say, hey, I'm not perfect, but I do want you to emulate my lifestyle as you see me to the extent that you see me emulating the lifestyle style of Christ. But guess what? He's putting the responsibility on them to know what the word of God says. Yeah. So yeah. that they know when he's deviating from mm. following Christ. Yeah. That, that's why we're doing what we do mm. in this Bible study is to equip the saints. Yeah. So that they know when it goes off the guardrails or not. Because if you don't have that information and knowledge, you just don't know and are following someone blindly. You figure if Paul is doing it, it's got to be right. But no, Paul said, hey, as long as I'm following Christ, follow me. And when I stop following Christ, stop following me. But but it puts the it puts it puts the, the burden on them to know the word of God, to mm-hmm. know when he's following Christ and when he's not following Christ. Yeah. I don't want to... <clears throat> to go beyond this next one, because I think this one is one that we need help with. Mm -hmm. Uh, This next one is an application question of saying, is there a promise to claim? And let me start out by saying this to everybody who is tuning in here. Uh, Everything in the Bible ain't a promise. That when you read God's word, again, there are things that are going to describe things, but there are also things that prescribe things that can be promises. And you have to be able to discern the difference between those. And I say all that because we live in a Western culture and society where a particular form of the gospel has really infiltrated the court, the, the, the church, where we now have folks out there who feel like we can make a claim or name everything in scripture as a promise for us when it isn't necessarily for us. Uh, It's a promise to a particular group of people in particular circumstances. Yeah. um, This is my pet peeve. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Some promises were made to Israel. There's other promises made to the church. And we have to learn that Israel is not the church, that Israel and the church are two separate, distinct entities, and God handles them totally and completely different. 
And oftentimes we're guilty of taking promises that were made to Israel and grabbing them, saying they're for me, but they're not for us. Yeah. Because he's speaking, as you were saying, to a particular group, oftentimes the children of Israel, or a particular person in a particular circumstance. And so we need to understand what's surrounding the promise to make sure it is really truly for us as a believer in the 21st century. And we better be grateful we aren't Israel. Yes. Because we might find ourselves stoned to death <laughs> and out of commission over over little acts that we do. So uh, we can't can't necessarily claim those promises. Let's look at Deuteronomy 28 um, here as one example. And then I'll go back to the Hebrews text because I think I want to start in Deuteronomy chapter 28 verses 12 and 13. And this is one that people love the quote, love the quote. And this is uh, the blessings and cursings <laughs> text in Deuteronomy that uh, shows their blessings for obedience to God that we find here. And look at what he says in verse number 12. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. I'm a lender, but not a borrower. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. Now we will take that text and we will sing it, we will claim it, and we will name it and say that I'm a lender and not a borrower, but you got you a mortgage and a bank account. <laughs> how, Sway? How? How do we go how do we go about claiming this text as a promise when we know this is a particular promise to the people of Israel in this particular context? And in addition to that, if that's a promise, then tell me about the life of Job, right. who suffered immeasurably before he was, quote unquote, blessed. So he wasn't the head the entire time in his life, the entirety of the book of Job. So taking that and claiming it as a promise is setting, setting us up for disappointment in this life, especially when we go through adversity and hardships. And not only that, even the, and even with it's being spoken to the children of Israel, it's also a conditional promise. Right. Yep. They did not oftentimes obtain this promise because they were disobedient time right. and time and time and time again. Mm. And so even if he was talking to us, mm. man, a whole lot of us would not meet the condition wow. to be able to obtain it. Yes. But he's, he's clearly speaking to the nation of Israel. Yeah. And, and let's finish with this text in Hebrews 13. Okay. I think it's important for us to be able to provide that context. So that that's not a promise right. in that text. But look at what the writer of Hebrews says here in Hebrews 13. And interestingly enough, he's talking about uh, keeping yourself from the love of money, <laughs> which the Deuteronomy text is driven by a love of prosperity and money. And, and listen to what he says, the writer of Hebrews says, he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you 
nor forsake you. Now that last text is in quotations. It's not a direct quote of any New Testament passage. There are Old Testament passages that say, I will never leave you or forsake you. You find that in Deuteronomy 31, where Moses is talking to the Israelites. God says that to Joshua directly. But what he's saying here is contentment is supposed to be the predominant characteristic of the Christian life and not the love of money. Don't be out there claiming that you are a lender, not a borrower, the head, not the tail, because the, the Christian life needs to be characterized, as we talked about with Paul in his letter to Philippians, by contentment. Because why we why are we content? Because we serve a God who will never leave us or forsake us. Yeah. And and another thing in, in these promises or Bible period, understand the Bible, doctrine is built precept upon precept. Yeah. So this whole idea of contentment that is brought out in Hebrews, Paul also talks about that. Yeah. He said in every place, every state that I'm in, I have found I have learned to be, be content. content. Mm-hmm. And he talked about I've been up, I've been down, I've had much, I have little. But he said, man, I got to the place in my life that wherever place I was, mm-hmm. I've learned to be contentment. So you just can't grab mm-hmm. one promise, one scripture, mm-hmm. and, and make it the be all. Mm-hmm. It has to be lined up with other scripture. Yeah. yeah. Reaffirm. Proof text. Yeah. 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 And that's how you look for a promise to claim in scripture that you have to understand the context of it. So what this text tells us is that that contentment is the character trait that we all need to have as believers when it comes to God making provision for us, making provision for us. That's a good place to be. Good place to be. Good place to be. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Growth Factor podcast. We do hope and pray that this session on application helped you to answer this question. So what? And we do hope that you will take what we have said today and apply that to your life so that you can continue to be transformed by God's word. Would you do me a favor? Go over to our uh, Facebook group. We have the Grow Factor group that is growing exponentially every single day. We have an amazing online campus pastor, Pastor Chris, who continues to keep that community engaged with the sessions that we're doing and also with content throughout the week. We'd love for you to join that community on Facebook. Again, it is Grow Factor. Also, uh, find our podcast or subscribe to our podcast if you have not um, and follow it and give us some ratings, reviews. We'd love for you to hear your con- your, your feedback. Uh, connect with us, allow us to be able to uh, pour back into your lives as much as you have uh, continued to pour in us in the comments. We see your comments on all of our social platforms. So we're grateful to God for each and every one of you. Next go round, we're going to be talking about uh, Jesus and finding Jesus in any text. You don't want to miss uh, this particular session. We're probably going to do two or three of those because it's so much, it's so rich and we're looking forward to it. Thank you for joining me on this session, Pastor T. My pleasure, brother. Appreciate you. All right, y'all have a good evening. This has been The Growth Factor, a broadcast ministry of St. Mark Baptist Church. Be sure to follow this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and join our Facebook group, The Growth Factor, for daily motivational content. Let's keep the conversation going. Thank you for listening.